0: Hey, team. Well, it's been quite some time since I've been able to chat with you here from the comfort of my recording closet. Sorry for the delay, but it's been a busy and exciting past month for me and the team here at The Adventure Activist. First off, Banff Film Fest with board member Rebecca Rush it was an absolute blast. And she and the Red Bull Media House team took home an award for the best exploration and adventure film. Congrats, Rebecca. Rebecca. You can catch the film, Blood Road, for free right now on Red Bull TV. I encourage you to check it out. And if you are so moved, it would mean so much to her if you could donate to the cause and help us remove more unexploded ordnance from Laos. Just go to her site at RebeccaRush.com. That's R-E-B-E-C-C-A-R-U-S-C-H or TheAdventureActivist.org. Click on the Donate tab and look for the Mines Advisory Group. And from there, I was off to an inspiring network meeting in Boulder with the University of Colorado Consortium of Climate Change. And then on to Aspen to do a little teaching. I'd like to thank Aspen Ski Co., the Ski Patrol crew, Aspen Mountain Rescue, and the Limelight Hotel for hosting me. And it was there where I got to catch up with one of my most trusted mentors and friends, Dr. Peter Hackett. In this season of gratitude, let me say I am surely grateful to Peter for modeling a life I want to lead, and for the generosity of his time over the years, and most importantly, the laughs. So, without further ado, let's share some of that inspiration and those laughs with you. Born from our experiences as explorers. And forged by a commitment to the positive change we want to see in the world.
1: This is the Adventure Activist Podcast. I mean, I remember sitting in Washington Square in San Francisco, writing in a journal saying, I have no idea where this is going to take me, but I'm really looking forward to a great adventure. I'd have a piton driven into the post to hold an IV bottle, and there'd be oxygen and an open flame and stuff. And I'd put up a little sign outside the hut saying things like, uh, you know, volunteer doctor needs pants or or socks. (laughs) He asked me, am I going to die? I said, yes, you're probably going to die before too long. He says, well, that's fine. I just want to try to make sure that I die on an auspicious day so that I can re- be reborn in the best life. And so his family and him kind of consulted with the Llamas and did the astrology and figured out what day would be best for him to die. And that's the day he died. It's amazing. And people do not save things that they don't love. and. If I can make a small contribution in getting more people out in the backcountry by reassuring them they're not going to die, they can go there with their high blood pressure, they can go there pregnant, they can go take their kids there, show them how to do it safely, give them advice. The more people that get out there into the environment of the wilderness, the more people are going to love it, the more people are going to try to save it.
0: Welcome to the Adventure Activist Podcast. I'm your host, Terry O'Connor. This is a place for accomplished athletes, inspiring adventurers, and influential activists to share their journeys and life discoveries. Through their stories, we hope to deconstruct how we all can add more meaningful value to the world and do some good with our passion for adventure. This is Episode 4 with Dr. Peter Hackett. If you've ever wondered how to plan and acclimatize on an adventure at altitude, well, you can thank Dr. Hackett for starting the conversation. For those doctors and even some of the high altitude guides out there, Dr. Hackett's name is well recognized as the expert when it comes to high altitude medicine. As a climber, emergency physician and researcher, he has refined his expertise over the decades. What is less well known is how a passion for adventure and a willingness to chase an opportunity on a shoestring budget led to over six formative years with the people and mountains of Nepal, which in turn set the stage for the indelible mark he has left on mountain medicine today. Sure there will be some talk about medicine, but I encourage you to all have a listen to the end. This is a story about the courage to take advantage of the opportunities that come your way and a testament to the positive impact that can come not only to you, but to others by saying yes to adventure. Enjoy. Peter Hackett, good to hang out after breakfast with you. After hanging out last evening here in Aspen, uh, doing as we do, meeting up, doing medical stuff, but um, awesome to finally catch up with you and uh, shoot the breeze a little bit of this. I, I wanted, I have to start by going back to uh, your story of paraponting and paragliding I got to know more detail about that we can go to other stuff later but so what what year was that when you were uh, in Alaska when that happened
1: oh it was in the 80s I was on Denali from uh, 81 to 89 and I think it was 85 or 86 paraponting was still allowed on the mountain then or they hadn't prescribed it and uh, people were bringing up paraponts and yeah. I got intrigued.
0: So for, for those of you who don't know what paragliding is, that's now paragliding would be what some people refer to that these days. But essentially, who'd you borrow the, you borrow the wing from? Or how'd you get it?
1: It was a German uh, team that was coming up to uh, paraglide. And they had, uh, I don't know why they let me use one. But uh, <laughs> I guess I had helped them out at the camp. And I was interested in asking them a lot of questions. And they said, well, why don't you try it? So I took one of their wings and climbed up to the uh west shoulder there above the west buttress camp and uh took off with minimal instruction <laughs>
0: this was pre-youtube times of course so like yeah. how did you how did you learn how to even operate the wing did you just basically sit around and coffee with these guys and say how does this thing work
1: yeah <laughs> they, they, yeah they, you know, they just showed me sitting around uh, having coffee, as you say, uh, you know, pull here, pull there, and this is how you you flare it and uh, deflate it, and that was the main thing I wanted to know you know was how to get down and because I had seen them, god they were doing beautiful flights off of the west ridge of Denali there and uh, circling around the camp, you know, and then coming in for these uh-huh. graceful landings. Some were going off the summit, but I wasn't going to be that ambitious for my first flight. I just wanted to go off the West Ridge there.
0: Yeah, because what you were doing was, it sounded safe enough, right?
1: <laughs> well, I waited till it was a really soft, uh, powdered day. There was a lot of snow on the ground. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and then what happened, Peter?
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I carried it up there, but it was late in the day. And uh, I, you know, during the day, the winds are going up uh, from the basin up on the ridge, but then when the sun goes around the ridge, and it suddenly the the temperature suddenly drops, then the winds shift and go down the ridge towards the basin. And um, I guess I took too long to get up there. I was late in the day, so when I took off, the uh, the winds were just starting to shift, and it took me instead of lifting me up and giving me a nice flight around above the camp, it, it, the winds just kind of funneled me right down into the camp as you know i mean i was off the ground and I, you know but not very far off the ground 20 30 feet at the most probably and just straight down the slope into this huge snowbank right near my camp with all these people watching it was quite dramatic
0: <laughs> i think you mentioned a nice uh, crater snow explosion
1: it was like a bombshell they said <laughs> I never saw so much powder fly up in the air from somebody impacting a, a snow. And then uh, uh, I wasn't hurt. I was a bit stunned. And uh, when I got up and <laughs> kind of like put my fist up and cleared my head from the snowbank, I heard this loud cheer. <laughs> <laughs> and all these people were coming over, wow, you know, how long have you been paragliding? And I said, well, you know, that was my first flight. <laughs> oh that explains it <laughs>
0: so, you, uh, so you weren't there just for for entertainment you were there you were there as a doc at the time were you on a uh park service uh
1: assignment? Well, no, well that's when my camp was there for the whole summer i was doing okay. research and uh, rescue and so you know i had a team up there and we we're very well acclimatized and we meet all these people going through with various ambitions and uh so there was a lot of support services and whatnot. I mean, you know, yeah. it wasn't like I was out there. All, I knew my team would come rescue me if they had to. <laughs>
0: or at least come and laugh at you. <laughs> yeah.
1: Just glad I didn't go over the edge.
0: <laughs> was that the first and last time you put a wing on?
1: No, I did a couple more times, but oh, with a little you. more uh, uh, smarts about mm-hmm. it, like trying to catch an updraft. And, uh, but I never uh, took it up as a sport or anything
0: yeah right. yeah so I've, I've always been curious um so it's a good story of you being in the mountains and obviously there's many but um I, d- I didn't know what happened first for you is is medicine or mountains i mean did you because you grew up in, in illinois
1: right? I, yeah i grew up in chicago area and my introduction to mountains was through my grandparents when they drove me to colorado when i was about 12 years old to visit an uncle and um uh and i got lost in the mountains um on a hike, I remember that vividly. and uh, But was able to figure out my way back by following a transmission line or a telephone pole line or something. <laughs> and uh, so that was my first, like, survival situation. <laughs> and then um, then when I was in college in, in the Midwest, I would come out and ski. And, uh, I, and during medical school, I uh, came out one time to uh, Yosemite and totally fell in love with Yosemite. Okay.
0: Where did
1: you go to medical school? Uh, in Chicago. Okay.
0: So you it, came all the way out came
1: of all the way out to California. And um, I just—the uh, Sierra Nevada was just so impressive to me. So when I applied for internships, uh, my first choice was San Francisco General because I thought it was pretty close to Yosemite, and I'd be able to go to Yosemite once in a while. Well, as an intern— I think I had two trips to Yosemite, each for about 36 hours, which is about the, the whole time I had off during my internship here. <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, in those days, it's, it's even worse than it is now. I mean, okay. it was 80 to 100 hours a week, easy. Yeah. So, uh, but then after uh, after my internship, I was. Uh, Dispirited, I think, by all the violence I saw at San Francisco General, mm. it was just such a violent place, and I was there in the trauma service most of the time, and uh, I, would, I felt like I needed a break before I started a residency. Mm. So, uh, I uh, <clears throat> I had signed up for residency, and uh, then I decided I wasn't going to do it, and um, instead, I was going to take a year off and. Uh, one of the first things I did was go to Yosemite and uh, started talking to them about uh, whether they could maybe use a doctor up there to help them out and I was hired for $4.47 an hour as technically as a firefighter but my real job was to teach one of the first EMT courses ever in uh, a national park and so I was put on their fire team and their rescue team and I was given a, a I was on the HeliTAC team, which was a helicopter rescue team. Mm-hmm. And uh, and when we weren't doing rescues, we were fighting fires. And I taught this EMT course. I went to um, Modesto, I think it was, to get a, a sign-up and become a junior college uh, instructor. So, so I, could, could, teach the class so like I could teach the EMT class. I think it was the first one in a national park, I'm not sure, because this is just when EMT was starting. And well uh,
0: before the Fresno paramedic program, yeah, oh, yeah, oh yeah. way yeah. before.
1: Yeah. Butch Farabee was, um, I think he might have done, th- he and I probably did the first ones. Anyhow, um, what year was that? That was 1974. Yeah. Okay. And um, so in Yosemite, I mean, it was great, it was the best job I've ever had. Because <laughs> I lived in Crane Flat uh, in a tent cabin, I had a great gray owl for a neighbor. And I'd hike up to the helicopter pad um, for fire duty and for training stuff. And I go out and work on a fire, and a rescue would come in. They they call me on the radio and say meet at the LZ. They'd pick me up in the chopper and fly me on t- to the rescue, and then I'd take the patient either to the Valley Clinic or wherever they had to go. And then sometimes I go back to the fire line. Sometimes I go back to my tent cabin, and I'd have I'd have lookout duty. Uh, for you know the fire lookout which yeah. is a wonderful way to spend an evening and, yeah. a, and a day all by myself and uh, a few bears around it was great met some great people and started the climbing so my my first i had two uh prominent climbing partners or i should say climbing instructors one was uh bev johnson huh? who was the uh, yeah. f- first woman to climb yeah. el cap i think yeah. and uh she was she, she was encouraged me encouraging me to do a lot more crack climbing. But my real talent was in face climbing, mm-hmm. and uh, anyhow we climbed a lot. And uh, and then uh, Dennis Miller, <clears throat> who was uh, one of the stone masters of the time, who uh, was quite a character, and uh, and so when I put my my own fire crew together, we were able to do that at certain times. I had Dennis Miller, Tim Fitzgerald, Bev Johnson, and uh, a couple others. We had a great time. It was a pretty tight-knit group. So that's what really got me into climbing. And then um, one day, around the campfire, camp four, there was a guy that had uh, broken a rib or injured his rib during a climb that day, and he asked me to take a look at him and give him some advice. And so I, I spoke to him and helped him out. It looked like he probably did have a broken rib, and we talked about that. And then this is towards the end of the summer, and they said, you know, um, I could use a doctor in Nepal. I said, well, how's, how's that? He says, well, his name was Leo Le bon, and he was the president of Mountain Travel. Mm-hmm. And he had a trekking company in uh, Nepal, and he needed a doctor to go with his treks. And so he asked me if I'd like to go on a trek to Nepal that fall. And, uh, you know, here's the beauty of not having commitments on hand. uh, I thought, oh, I don't think I've I've got anything terribly uh, compelling for this fall. I could probably (laughs) fit that in. So uh, right, I went
0: because for the other doctor types that might be listening here, this was back when you would you would commit to an internship only, then, then yeah. apply after that for a residency, depending on what you wanted to do. Right, yeah.
1: right. And so uh, <clears throat> I, I went to his office in Albany, California, or, or Berkeley, Berkeley, and uh, they lined me up with. Uh, with uh, plane tickets to Kathmandu. And at that time, you had to go through, uh, it was a real adventure. It was like a 36-hour trip. You had to go through India to get to Nepal and whatnot. And um,
0: So this was still in 74? In
1: 74, yeah, the fall of 74. And, uh, and it was great. I fell in love with Nepal. Uh, there was only two trekking companies in the country at that time. There were very few automobiles. It was really kind of like a Shangri-La Kathmandu. Believe it or not, it was really quiet, and there were, uh, you know, devotional temples on every corner, and a lot of chanting going on, and uh, the streets weren't very crowded. It was wonderful, and uh, but so anyhow, I was I committed to three months. I ended up being there for eighteen months that first time because I just wanted to stay on, uh-huh. and um, he had more treks for me to do, and then I became a trek leader, and then I became. Uh-huh. As I did more mountaineering, I became kind of a mountain guide, and then I would lead more technical treks over the high passes. Yeah, and then I would <clears throat> start a series of treks just for doctors to teach them mountain medicine. This was later on in the '80s, but uh, so at, towards the end of my stint there, um, I needed, um, or in early '75, I guess I wanted to stay in Nepal so badly because I'd really fallen in love with the place and with the people and especially the Everest region. And,
0: um, and that was after primarily just working with non-travel, right? and doing the guiding stuff and being here. Right.
1: Physician support. Yeah. But I had gotten to know the doc- some of the doctors in Kathmandu at Patan hospital. And I'd go over there and, um, uh, not help them out really, but make rounds once in a while, see interesting things. And, um, And I became very, very interested in altitude sickness because here I was on these treks to Everest Base Camp. I was amazed the first time I went up to Everest Base Camp to 17,500 feet, how more than half the people in my group all seemed to have come down with some sort of viral illness because they all had headaches, nausea, dizziness, couldn't sleep well, but no fever, no myalgias, no sore throat, and I wondering what the heck is this? It suddenly dawned on me, this is mountain sickness. Yeah. There was very little known about mountain sickness in those days. There was only two or three papers in the literature, right. and um, I thought, "Oh, this is mountain sickness." And I had been briefed by Gil Roberts in Berkeley. <clears throat> he was the uh, physician for the '63 Everest trip, and a great guy. And he was my mentor, and he had told me, you know, about mountain sickness. But I hadn't really, you know, until you see it and or you really thinking about it you don't rec- you always think of something else so uh th- then i decided i, I wanted to really I, I got interested in that and the Himalayan rescue association had just started this little hut of a clinic at uh, ferryche and john dickinson was a f- practicing physician from britain who had been in nepal for a long time spoke when fluent he, nepali he was the first he was the first uh he was like the medical director when they decided to put this Himalayan Rescue Association thing together. And
0: was that 73 or 74 when
1: that came together? So it was 73.
0: Yeah,
1: okay. But, uh, you know, the guy who spearheaded it, uh, John Scow, was a Peace Corps volunteer. He had heard about all these deaths and rescues in the Khumbu, but he had never actually been there. And um,
0: Was he somewhere else in Nepal? Yeah, okay.
1: he, he was somewhere else in Nepal. He was in West Nepal, I think. But he came to Kathmandu, and he urged the uh, trekking company people to get together and do something about... These stories he was hearing about in the Kumbu about trekkers being evacuated and dying from altitude sickness so uh, the trekking companies got together, the only two or three that existed and um, under the direction of John they stationed a nurse up there in Farache in 73 uh, Dolly Lefevre and, uh, and there was a physician Jim Winter from England who spent a, a short time there and it was a very primitive thing. They rented a, a little yak herder's hut, and um, but I thought, God, that'd be a great place to to uh, hang out for a while, to learn more about mountain sickness, help people, both local people and trekkers, and I really wanted to figure out a way to stay in Nepal. That was my main motivation. <laughs> so um, I approached them and said, Yeah, I'll I'll uh, staff your clinic and work there, and uh, you know, it's a volunteer position and they said, "Oh, okay." So, um, we set it up, and I started there in um, in seventy five. Then, and then the summer of seventy five, um, went to the Karakoram in Pakistan. I was working with with the, through this uh, Tibetan Institute out of uh, Berkeley that was identifying. Uh, Monks that were sick in the Himalaya and asking me to go visit them. And I went around northern India to a lot of different monasteries between uh, Dharamsala uh, going east towards um, the Garhwal Himal. And uh, I would go to these different monasteries uh, with a mission to look up these different monks and see how they were doing and kind of check on their medical care. And there was stuff like Huh. A young monk uh, recovering from a ruptured appendicitis that still had drains in place and was intermittently septic, and there was uh, a lot of tuberculosis yeah. and um, all sorts of different things and you know, a lot of water issues, clean water issues and whatnot. And they wanted me to re- write a report back to them about the status, health status of these monasteries and these monks and stuff. So I did some of that
0: that was just part of their kind of non nonprofit mission or something to, to yeah or are they associated with these monks in some way
1: or? yeah well through the yes uh, because yeah. the uh, monks from these monasteries had made their way to Berkeley I think oh, and established some American connections so. and then uh, you know were seeking help in that way it was really interesting um, and they
0: just tracked you down because you were a known American with yeah the, yeah that happened to be out there
1: yeah I forget the exact connections huh. uh exactly how it came about but they got to know me uh, or know about me and and vice versa so I would do that but I ended up um going doing a trek for mountain travel as well in uh in the car quorum. we went to K2 in 1975 same year that um, Whitaker and those guys uh-huh. uh didn't get anywhere on the mountain and Shenard was there and I met Shenard then that's where I met Mike Covington who became a good lifelong friend in um, in Pakistan, in northern Pakistan, um, it was very primitive, and there was no roads like there are now. And uh, it was very strenuous trekking, yeah. but it was a great trip. Very different people, a whole different um, milieu. I mean, the the climate's different, the geology is different, the the people are different. It's it's uh, very interesting, northern Pakistan compared to the the more southeast in the Himalaya. Anyhow, I remember uh, I had no money. I, I was very poor. I, um, I mean, I had. I left the States. I didn't really have any savings, and I still had about $9,000 in medical school debt. Um,
0: you were probably just getting your way paid for these assignments. Yeah, I, was smart, I
1: wasn't right? making Without any money. Making money yeah. The trekkers would I'd uh, take care of trekkers up there at the clinic in Farache, and they... The Sherpas would often slip me uh, rice and dal because we we couldn't even afford <laughs> rice and dal in those days. Uh, my diet was strictly sampa, which is roasted barley flour mixed yeah. with tea and then potatoes. We, rice was expensive, and lentil beans were expensive. So, And we never had meat, uh, occasional vegetables. But the trekking groups would come through, and the Sherpa kitchens would slip me food and uh, and the trekkers would give me clothes when they were leaving, you know, and I'd put up a little sign outside the hut saying things like, uh, you know, volunteer doctor needs pants or, <laughs> or socks. <laughs> and uh, people would donate things. It was hilarious. And, and you know, the medical clinic was a dirt floor, very dark in there, uh, wood posts holding up the slate roof and uh I'd have a piton driven into the post to hold a, an IV bottle. Uh-huh. And there'd be oxygen and an open flame and stuff. And most of the time I'd want to administer care in the trekkers' tents because they're lighter and warmer and, uh, you know, easier to...
0: Less like a dungeon.
1: Yeah, yeah. It was really primitive. But it was the only uh, medical care around. So, And even for the local people, you know... Um, yeah, so uh, you know, I've got a lot of stories, but I,
0: what do you remember as like your most terrifying case during those early days? Where...
1: Well, I can. Some I remember some amazing cases, uh, like this one local uh, farmer from uh, Ferriee and Dingboche, an older fella. You know, when I say older, like in their, if you're in your fifties over there, you're older. Yeah. In those days, and uh, he. Uh, was having some stomach pain and then uh, he had a gastric hemorrhage. Wow. And uh, they brought him in and uh, I was, I said, you know, we really need to start an IV to give you some fluids and stuff. He says, what's in the fluids? I said, well, sugar and salt. He says, "Oh, I can eat sugar and salt. I don't want any needles in me or any fluid. So he proceeded to eat this huge plate of rice with extra salt on it. And uh she stopped bleeding <laughs> i think he I think he tamponotted his stomach, you know <laughs> and uh but on exam, I could feel that he had uh a mass you know a gastric mass, and I assume he had gastric cancer, which is fairly common wow. over there and uh so I told him, I think you have uh gastric cancer stomach cancer and and you know maybe we could get you to Kathmandu, but uh, you know. They wouldn't hear of anything like that. There was, wasn't any thought. All, he said, well, okay. I'm, he asked me, am I going to die? I said, yes, you're probably going to die before too long. He says, well, that's fine. I just want to try to make sure that I die on an auspicious day so that I can re, be reborn in the best life. And so his family and him kind of consulted with the lamas and did the astrology and figured out what day would be best for him to die, and that's the day he died. It's amazing. Huh. I mean, you know, he got progressively more ill, but yeah. but he wasn't going to try to do anything else. And that I remember another guy that was like that. A, one of the wealthier men by their standards, who had, because he had a lot of yaks, and um, he was the father of the gal that lived next to me, who was running a small tea house. A real character. What a character. And he was. He was a, a, a head figure, a lead figure in the village, and he had all these yaks. So he had all his yaks up at base camp, and he was. they would buy things from the expeditions in order to stock their, their tea houses. And he had amassed uh, all these material things that he was going to take down to his tea house, and he had all his yaks around him. And um, he said, this is good, this is good. and. Um, sat on top of this pile of stuff and died. And I, thought, and I asked his family, I said, Did, was he sick or anything? They said, well, he knew it was his time. And, you know, it's just so interesting to think about how these people weren't afraid of death. They lived with death all the time. Yeah. Kids were dying all the time. Uh, you know, there was no medical care to speak of. The Hillary Hospital had been built in the 60s. But it was a two-day walk, and a lot of these up-valley people wouldn't even bother going there. Yeah. And they were so fatalistic about it.
0: Yeah, when and, it's their it, time, it's their time, and they just wait for the right day. And
1: they had great confidence that they would be reborn if if they had done yeah. good deeds. You know. So it, it, that was a real eye-opener. But yeah. the, um, in terms of the trekkers... Two of the most dramatic cases I remember, and they made a lasting impact on me and on the Kumbu and on the whole trekking industry. Uh, there was a group called the, uh, the DAV, which is the German for the uh, German Alpine Club. And every time one of their groups came through, I knew, I knew we were going to have somebody in coma. Uh, and this, we were going to have big problems in evacuation. And I talked to their leaders when they come into Ferreche. And I said, you know, this would be a really good place for you to stop and rest for a, a day and get acclimatized before you go higher. And their typical response was, no, we will rest on the way down when we'll be more tired. Uh, yeah, makes know? sense. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they had no concept of acclimatization. And that is a time-dependent process. So this one time, the guy came up, and I said, you know, you really ought to take a rest day here because every time you guys come through, we end up trying to evacuate one of you with uh, um, severe altitude illness. And so uh, I got the usual response. Uh, But then that day, later that day, because they were camping there for one night, somebody came over and said, you know, so-and-so is sick in our group. And uh, and I said, really? And they said, yeah, we want you to come see him. And so I went over and said to the leader, you have somebody sick here that needs to be seen he said oh no we don't need your services thanks very much well so they went up the next day and that next night we get an emergency runner and it comes down because there's no kind of communications that says there's somebody unconscious up in their their camp so i ran up in the middle of the night with uh um my sherpa on rita who carried a uh a wicker chair which is what we used to put the patients in he carries it on his back yeah, yeah. and uh and we got up there and uh sure enough there's somebody in a coma um, you know with uh, what appeared to be probable uh, high altitude cerebral edema and um so we carry that person down uh on rita did on his back in the chair, we strap him in so they're sitting up, right? You know, fortunately, there wasn't an airway problem. His head
0: was bobbling around to and fro. Like yeah,
1: a bit. Yeah. I mean, you know, we wrap the, try to stabilize the head and neck a little yeah. bit with a down jacket, but that's the only way we could get people like, take, carry him around. You know, there weren't any animals to use at that time. There's and there's no stretchers were out of the question because it would take so many people. Yeah. So um,
0: so the yaks weren't up that high yet at that time or they weren't being used to ferry?
1: Well, there, you have to have a specially trained yak to carry a person and there weren't really many available. Hmm. And uh, and so we got him down and uh, it was a, a male who was in coma and we could oxygenate him and I had a uh, there weren't pulse oximeters available yet but I had a uh, I think I had a Hewlett-Packard ear oximeter that I was using for a research project, mm-hmm. which was a very good oximeter, actually. And um, it didn't really need to be intubated. His airway was okay. Uh, he was breathing spontaneously. Um, but, you know, he needed bladder drainage, and it needed uh, minimal IV hydration just to maintain some blood pressure and fluid balance. And... Uh, and uh, while I'm taking care of him the, the next morning, they carry down this other woman from the group who also is in a coma, <laughs> who also has high altitude cerebral edema, apparently, and uh, didn't appear to have much pulmonary edema, maybe a bit. So now I've got two unconscious Germans <clears throat> and no, no real way to take care of them for any prolonged period of time. I did have Foley catheters and IVs. I had intubation gear, but I didn't really use it. Um, yeah i mean what
0: are you, going to do
1: to you don't people? want to hyperventilate these yeah. people because you, you can render them ischemic and you definitely don't want to make them hypotensive with uh lasix or anything because although we did use lasix in those days but cautiously and, and while we would maintain blood pressure at the same time you know yeah. and uh steroids were not yet in vogue for um, high altitude cerebral edema and uh so the only thing to do is to get him down. And uh, I sent down a runner to Namche Bazaar, which is a full-day run for a really strong Sherpa, and, and made it. And then they sent a radio message from the police department down to Kathmandu. And a day and a half later, I got a message back, said, the king has the helicopter. We can't, we can't get a helicopter because there was only one helicopter in the country at that time. And the king uh, was learning how to fly it. And uh, it was, you know, it was a mess. But eventually, so the next day, however, somehow we got uh, the chopper in. And we were able to chopper these two uh, people out to Kathmandu. And the trucking company that they were with was Mountain Travel, uh, Mountain Travel Nepal. And I delivered these uh, two people to the hospital. And they ended up making good recoveries with Descent and with oxygen and um and but i went immediately in the clothes that i was wearing over to the mountain travel office and to confront al reed who was the managing director of mountain travel nepal and jimmy roberts who was the owner i can tell you a lot about jimmy roberts he's (laughs) you know he's the one that invented trekking yeah and, uh, and really made a huge impact on the lives of Sherpas, as much as Hillary. Yeah. Because um, he brought the
0: tourism industry there, yeah. in, essentially.
1: Right? And or, he doesn't get much credit for that. But anyhow, he, when I walked into his office there, he, he had a dog whose name was Rakshi. Rakshi is the <laughs> Nepali word for moonshine. <laughs> yeah. And uh, Rakshi jumped up and started licking me and smelling me and stuff. And Jimmy, in his English accent, says, My God, man, Roxy doesn't do that with anyone except Sherpas. You smell like a Sherpa. <laughs> <laughs> so, where uh, were we? So, when I came down in the helicopter with these unconscious people and uh, dropped them off to the hospital and then went straight over to uh, Mountain Travel Nepal. And I said, Look, you guys are killing people, sending trekkers up here to the Kumbu without any rest days for climatization. We've had one. Uh, You know, a number of deaths, all these helicopter evacuations when we can get a helicopter, a lot of ground evacuation, it's a huge mess. You've got to stop doing this. And they said, Well, what do you recommend? We're we're open, okay. You know, what what should we do? And off the top of my head, I said, You need to have all your groups stop for an extra night in Namche and an extra night in either Farache or Dingboche at 14,000 feet and build in two acclimatization days for your Trek to Everest base camp. So you would get from Lukla to base camp in nine days instead of seven days. Uh-huh. And they said, okay. <laughs> and ever since then, that's been the standard yeah. Trek itinerary, right. and that's how it had, came about. <laughs> it wasn't based on any data. Yeah, I mean, eventually we did publish data showing that, um, that the incidence of evacuations and severe mountain sickness dropped dramatically between 75 and 77. Just, we published that in the Lancet. What just a
0: classic graphic of the profile of ascent yeah. in that paper, right? Yeah, yeah. in the
1: '76 yeah. paper, yeah. yeah. And uh, But you know, that's how some of these things happen. It was just based on empiricism and observation that it wasn't based on any science, really. But it was some understanding that uh, of the basic process of colonization, it is time dependent. And the people that came up slower in my 75 study, showed that they definitely did better. So people often wonder where this idea came from about a rest day in Namche and a rest day or a colonization day at 14,000. That's where it came from. Yeah.
0: I think it's interesting to highlight, I mean, that period of research. I mean, you, you are not associated with any university. Right. You're out there on your own. You're volunteering. And you're publishing the research because – it just hasn't been done before. And it's obviously something right. viscerally that you have to deal with on a day to day basis, much like that story, yeah. You
1: know? I was astounded how little it was known about mountain sickness. So I started a correspondence with Charlie Houston and uh, he, he immediately realized that, that I was in a unique position yeah. to gain information. And so he was very supportive. And um, <clears throat> but bef- and John Dickinson was very supportive, and I remember being at the Chateau Bois Hospital Library, where I was able to read some of the literature, and the the only paper at that time was the the, one by Indira Singh in the Indian Army, published in the New England Journal in 1969, where he had 1,923 cases of mountain sickness, and uh, he nailed it, I mean, he the description. The description yeah. in a military population, yeah. which is a bit different than um, uh, a trekking population. And uh, he advocated the use of uh, steroids for severe mountain sickness and for cerebral edema. And that's where that idea came from. He also advocated Lasix, which we which we use and l- later turned out to be kind of dangerous. And uh, there was also one animal study that uh, showed that Diamox was helpful in dogs because it stimulated ventilation. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And I decided I would do a Diamox study in 75 in the fall when I came back. So uh, I thought I'd do a – I didn't know anything about research, but I knew that you had to have a placebo and uh, it had to be blinded.
0: And you're still just doing this all on your own while you're vo- volunteering. For yeah.
1: So I went to the Royal Drug Company in Nepal and Kathmandu and asked them to make a placebo identical to the Diamox tablets, which they did. And uh, it cost me about $10 or something. Uh-huh. Then I hired a British nurse that was looking for something to do in Nepal. And by hired, I mean um, I had the HRA provide her with, with um, food and uh, a place to stay in Namche, and she recruited trekkers in Namche. She was an attractive young lady. It wasn't that hard for her to attract a lot of trekkers <laughs> into this study. And so we 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 enrolled people in Namche, and did I devised I came up with this uh, mountain sickness questionnaire as based on what seemed to be the be be the most important symptoms, headache, vomiting, nausea, dizziness, etc. Which later became known as the Hackett score, and uh, we kept track of all the symptoms, and then we would uh, re-study them in uh, ferryche and just you know with questionnaires, yeah. and look at their symptoms, and then they go up higher and they come back down, and we check them again, and uh, we ended up the whole study cost me fifty dollars, and there was no IRB, there was no committees there was no dean there was no nonsense so how
0: are you even making money this time
1: i wasn't making any yeah. money i you know um trekkers were giving me donations and uh, give me food and supplies and stuff Travel gave me a sleeping bag because mine had disintegrated and uh <laughs> and uh i was just you know living off people's generosity and um and we ended up with 283 um Subjects with complete data. So I came back to Chicago in, in 76. Um, I decided I really had to return to the States to make a little money and to start paying down some student loan debt, you know. Because
0: that was still sitting there. Because this is now like 18 months, 24 months yeah. into your.
1: Yeah, and I actually got a letter from the bank, my local bank in Chicago, saying, <laughs> you know, we need to collect on your uh, student loan if you've defaulted on it. I remember sending them a letter back. This is, I mean, talk about, I don't know if you want to call it naivete or hubris or what, but uh, (laughs) I sent them a letter back, said, You know, I'm in Nepal as a volunteer physician uh, treating people that are incredibly poor with tuberculosis and meningitis and stuff like that, and that these people need my help a lot more than you need my money. And I'll let you know. When I I will come back and I will pay you off, but uh, you know don't hold your breath. I'll I'll let you know when I'm back. <laughs> and, and, and so that's what I did. And I, when I came back, um, um, I did two things. I immediately got a job uh, through a uh, physician placement company in Berkeley, you know, for ER docs, uh, and started to work in Bishop, California, oh. at uh, because I had met people from Bishop, Trek, and Apollo, who were wonderful, and they told me all about Bishop and how great it was, and so I I started there. And secondly, um, I I had all this data. I took it to Drummond Rennie, who was at that time at Rush Presbyterian in in, um, Chicago, and he he had published in the field of high-altitude medicine and uh, was a well-known figure. He and Charlie Houston were the only two docs that I could find that – had published about mountain sickness uh, from North America and knew knew about it. So I brought him these reams of data and he he, he couldn't believe it. He said, yeah. you did what? <laughs> you sat in this clinic for months and you collected this data and you've got all this raw data and you don't know what to do with this? He said, I know what to do with this. <laughs> and so uh, he taught me how to uh, analyze data and um, how to write a paper. Yeah. And uh, we did it together, and we published. It was the lead article in the Lancet in 1976. Yeah, and and the title was the incidence, importance, and prophylaxis of acute mountain sickness. And it, it was a huge splash. It was the first large study on mountain sickness um, in trekking in a civilian population. It was only the second study ever in, in uh, any population, and. Uh, and we showed that Diamox was an effective preventive for mountain sickness. And we also showed, that the, to date, still the only study that ever compared no treatment to a placebo to Diamox. Yeah. And showed that a placebo had about a 20% effect in reducing mountain sickness. Nobody has ever done that, you know, compared to no treatment at all. And it shows you the, the subjective nature of mountain sickness. Yeah. So anyhow, that launched uh, my career, yeah. uh, so to speak. And then I, I went back in. Uh, so anyhow, I went back to Nepal after making enough money for an airplane ticket and, yeah. and some supplies. And I was funding the Himalayan Rescue Association by going around North America giving talks. Uh, kind of based
0: off the uh, yeah. <clears throat> the fact that you'd written that paper. I mean, do you think that kind of gave you street cred in the medical community to be able to reach out and start to give those talks?
1: Well, no, it was more like you just created family and friends and climbing community. Just this is before the paper was published. Just, oh, okay. just trying to raise money for the HRA, showing what we're, yeah. you know, what we're trying to do in Nepal to help trekkers and local people. It's all volunteer. We need some money, and um, I would go around the country. Th- the American Alpine Club is very supportive. Yeah. I was able to channel any donations through them, and then they could make it tax deductible. Yeah. And um, and I was able to scrape together uh, you know, a couple thousand dollars was all we'd need to run a season in Ferriche. And but nobody else was raising any money. I was the only person that was really doing it. And I then I came up with this idea for making patches and I on my way through Hong Kong I had a bunch of Himalayan rescue patches made and then we started selling those. And um You know, it was it was really a one man operation for years. For a few years,
0: like, did you keep in touch with anybody you went to medical school with at this time? And like, kind of compare at all your lifestyle to what they were doing at
1: that point. Now, no, I I pretty much uh, well, well, yeah. One one medical school buddy, uh, uh, a gal that um, I went to medical school with, who was living in Berkeley. Uh, Polly Young. I remember when I my first trip back to the States after being in Nepal, this was hilarious I had a a backpack uh, full of stuff and um, in those days we flew Pan Am and and Pan Am flight one went around the world to the west and flight two to the east or something like that and uh, I remember being in Delhi I missed my flight uh, which was supposed to take me through uh, um, Hong Kong and back that way to the San Francisco. And uh, but my bag made it on that flight. And uh, so I took the next flight, which is going west and went through uh, went Delhi to uh, Tehran, Rome, London, New York, San Francisco that way. and met my bag in San Francisco (laughs) unbelievable and uh, I had eight dollars and 17 cents I remember it because it stuck in my mind in my pocket and that was it (laughs) so uh, I called Polly uh, said Polly I you know I need a place to stay and uh, coming into the city into San Francisco on my way back from India and Nepal she of course she knew I was there and Great, so I got in a taxi cab, and I said, take me towards Potrero Hill. He says, what do you mean, towards Potrero Hill? I said, I only have $8.17 that I can pay you, so take me that far. He says, man, where are you coming from? I said, I'm coming from uh, India and Nepal. He says, oh, heck, I'll just drive you the whole way for six bucks, (laughs) so so you won't have to spend your last penny on cab ride. I got to Polly's house with $2 in my pocket, and uh, she loaned me a couple hundred bucks so I could, uh, you know resupply myself uh, with a new pair of jeans and a shirt <laughs> and uh, <laughs> No Trekkers
0: had given you a pair of jeans recently
1: huh? No they were good with wool pants yeah. and stuff but uh, and so one of the first things I did was uh, you know try to find a make some calls and try to find a job yeah. and I was to work in an ER well,
0: fairly she quickly at the time?
1: She was a family practice doc yeah. in uh, Berkeley at the time Yeah, and uh yeah, I mean, just. and then I could, you know, I could borrow money from friends once I got yeah. stateside, and, and um, it wasn't too long before I got a paycheck. And then I did eventually pay off my student loans, which weren't very much at that time compared to what people do now. But I really um, didn't feel comfortable in the States and wanted to go back yeah. to Nepal. And um, so I went back to Nepal for a couple more years. Um, continue to raise money for the hra then the the paper was published and then hra started to become known and yeah. and we did a lot of good work saved a lot of lives and but uh, mostly by changing the the schedule of the trekking groups and whatnot but we also still had a lot of pulmonary and cerebral edema cases that even after things had improved and uh and then i got more and more into climbing and i've still worked Occasionally, for mountain travel, as a climbing guide or a trekking guide, and then I decided um, I needed to make a serious step in one direction or the other. Either uh, get serious you about medicine, medicine, or or not, and be a climber, and uh, um, or join a Buddhist monastery, or you know, <laughs> I, I was wide open at the time. Yeah, so. Um, I decided I was going to actually, I was kind of an intellectual at heart, kind of an academician at heart, and um, so I decided I would come back and uh, do a fellowship in uh, cardiovascular pulmonary research at University of Colorado, which was basically a high-altitude medicine fellowship with emphasis on the right heart and the pulmonary circulation. So that's what I did with the best guys in the world, Jack Reeves and Bob Grover, and... um, and that really was good training. That taught me how to critically evaluate literature, how to come up with hypotheses that could be testable, how to design the test, how to write a paper, how to analyze data. And, um, you know, that really made a huge difference in in making me more competent and credible.
0: Right. I just uh, – it's a really interesting story because I'm curious, like, why – I mean, why did you decide to go into medicine in the first place?
1: Well, you know, I, I, you know, my father was a uh, physician, and uh, I admired the work that he did. Although I did not admire his lifestyle in terms of never being there for the family, and you know, I was yeah. medicine being the top priority. But uh, I had a, I had a calling, I would say, to uh, to help people. You know, I was infused at a young age with this desire to help others. That was probably you think just modeled because you're
0: you're modeled from your father as uh, perhaps.
1: And uh, I was the oldest of ten children in a Catholic family, and I had to take care of all my younger siblings. And I grew up learning how to be a caretaker kind of person. Yeah. And then, uh, and I was very pious at the time, so I wanted to be a Catholic priest. I was in the seminary first during the high school years. I'm just shaking my head over here for the listeners
0: out there. It's only because I know you well. Well, you know, I was
1: a late bloomer. I finally reached puberty and decided maybe that wasn't for me. Yeah. But, uh, no, but during my senior year of high school in this in this preparatory seminary school, my best friend hit his head in, in a swimming pool accident. Actually, yeah, it was tragic. He, anyhow, uh, he fell backwards hit his head and was in a coma for about a week oh wow and I was or maybe two weeks and I was in his hospital room every day and I saw the neurosurgeon would come in and see him and eventually he died and it made a huge impact on me and Yeah, I didn't I, I wanted to um, be, become a doctor that's when I decided to that I might be able to help people as a doctor uh, as much as I could as a priest or maybe even more and that it was a, a different way to help people, but it would still be a way to help people. And um, and I had my father and all his friends that I knew who were doctors that to kind of model that for me. And uh, so, so I changed and went to uh, wanting to be a Jesuit. To, I went to a Jesuit college, and, but in a pre-med mm. course. And <clears throat> probably the other thing that had a huge influence on me was yeah, and gave me the ability and the, the the schutzpah, if you want to call it, to stop my training and consider other things. Was, other it, was that a word you learned while you were in school? Schutzpah. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> <laughs> That's a Catholic word, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, when I was in college, it was the anti Vietnam era, you know. Yeah. I became. I would say I became well. I became radicalized. I guess I was, if it, if you want to say being against the Vietnam War was war was radical. It seems to me like that was very rational. But yeah. um, I got caught up in that movement, and I certainly saw the the injustice and the hypocrisy and the the wrongness of the Vietnam War. And so I became politicized, and then in medical school uh, well, I was in jail a couple times. Uh, yeah, you know, and one of those times <clears throat> was, um, uh, made me realize, in fact, w- w- so this one time I got busted for pot mm-hmm. in, when I was in medical school, we were all smoking pot, you know, we weren't real potheads, but we'd smoke once in a while. And, uh, Somehow we got my roommate and I got busted. and Cops came in and busted us, and hauled us off to jail. And said, uh, you know, they found out we were medical students, and they said, you guys will never be doctors now, <laughs> and put us in jail in Cook County in Chicago. And um, and I, it caused me to reflect on what I would do if I wasn't going to finish medical school, uh. and what all the other opportunities are, and whatnot and it, it made me realize that there really is a lot more to life other than medicine and okay. if, if i if I didn't become a doctor, there were lots of other interesting things i could do and and um and I remember on the wall of the jail cell there was this phrase written, "This too will pass i thought that was comforting and uh, <laughs> but it made an in, in- that's how it made an impact um huh. It was yeah. an interesting experience. As it turns out, um, you know, we were very afraid about getting kicked out of medical school. So um, uh, we immediately called the dean, and the dean um, bailed us out and uh, he got, out, us, yeah. got us out of jail and uh, <laughs> had a talk with us and did not uh, kick us out of school. and um, But it had a lasting impression um, about you know if if i were to lose that career give up that career uh it wouldn't be the end of the world yeah. there would be other things and um i see that a lot more in younger physicians now younger people in training where they see how the older generation my generation is devoted to medicine and their career to the exclusion of a lifestyle and a decent family life and and there's less emphasis now i think or i should say more emphasis on fulfilling oneself more completely and not just with career and not just with medicine. Yeah. And there is a calling
0: it could involve medicine but it doesn't have to be solely within medicine. Yeah. Yeah. Perhaps that's because of the selection process now and looking for more well rounded lifestyle or life experience before people even get into medical school could be part of it but um, I think it's also learning from frankly some of the mistakes of prior generations with medicine.
1: The other thing you realize when you go out in the world, I had just finished an internship. It was very good training, uh, but still, it was just an internship. And I realized I was, I was overtrained for what was required for most of the healthcare in the world. Yeah, that's a great insight. It's absolutely true. And, and to go yeah. through a four-year residency or a, a three-year, four-year residency in a fellowship—that's uh, not what the world needs. You don't need doctors trained like that. Um, it's It's far too specialized. People lose track of the big picture. They get totally tunneled in to their little specialty or subspecialty. And, you know, for the good of the world, that's not the best way to go. Yeah,
0: I think it's a great insight. And that's why, I mean, even, I I guess just to reflect back on my experience, that's why I like to try to get myself in positions where I don't have the technology I have in the ER. Because I feel like even just having those crutches of diagnostics and consultants and everything else, I lose... Touch with like the really simple things that make the biggest public health impact, like oral rehydration therapy for diarrhea. <laughs> yeah, right. <mean,
1: laughs> you don't need IVs. You don't need IVs. Time. You don't need like, everybody time. coming into ER in the states gets an IV. You know. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, the other thing I noticed was um, I noticed that people who had worked in the third world and who had worked without all the sophisticated equipment and stuff knew how to do physical exams and were had a really good common sense about them. So I, you know, later on when I was hiring ER docs, I noticed that I wanted people who had that kind of experience. Yeah. Instead of just hospital-based uh, for their whole careers because if they had worked in Nepal or India or Africa, they had a much better overall picture of things, better physical exam, better decision-making skills without having to rely on unnecessary technology and what was often unnecessary. And over-testing and, uh, you know, ruling out 15 different things instead of ruling in the one obvious thing. Yeah. Which you learn to do when your resources are limited. Uh, So, yeah. Yeah. What, I mean,
0: obviously that was a really valuable time for you to, to get out of the country after your internship. What... Gosh, I mean, what gave you that sense of security that you could step out and just do that? I mean, you're living off nothing, man. Yeah. And, and you're coming from a very structured environment. You know, yeah. you had your career path laid out for you. It's hard enough in the modern era, I think, for people to step off the medical training train, the professional track train, just to step out and do that. And was, that, was it motivated by you're really that? Emotionally affected by that first-year internship at San Francisco General, or were you upset about the medical system, or were you just so enamored with
1: climbing and adventure that you just needed to get the hell out? Well, I think it was a mixture of all those yeah. things. I, I was disillusioned with American medicine in general. I realized after my training that uh, uh, American medicine was very good at putting together people that were totally destroyed by a—, a Auto versus pedestrian accident, or even a gunshot wound, or a stabbing, or you know, major trauma. Very good in emergency medicine. Not so good in getting people to quit smoking, or not be obese, or eat right, or make healthy decisions. And uh, and that's what actually drew me to emergency medicine. I thought that had that was the best part that American medicine had to offer. Whereas if you really want to make a uh, difference in people's lives and in the culture, you you know, you had to convince them to stop drinking and smoking and exercise, which is still the way it is now. Uh, But anyhow, that's that's off on a tangent. So, um, what was the other thing that you get me to focus on? (laughs) Well, the the point was was um,
0: how did you muster the courage to kind of get off the treadmill? Yeah.
1: I don't really know. I think uh, I always knew as a backup I had a medical degree and that I could always come back and uh, have a comfortable lifestyle. Mm-hmm. So, unlike other mountain guides that I've met over in Nepal or other trekking leaders who didn't have that sort of backup, um, you know, it, it didn't bother me being penniless because I knew I could go back home and make money. Anytime I wanted to, so that that was helpful. But there was also um, a certain sense of, of uh, adventure. I had such an adventurous spirit, and I, you, you know, people are appalled uh, in some ways at how I could just take off like that and go to uh, Nepal or even go to Yosemite after my internship. Um, You know and let my career go where it may but i you know i wanted to focus on these particular things because they really appealed to me and some people thought i was running away from situations like my mother had gotten breast cancer and had died when i was an intern and i had these nine younger siblings and pressure from my family from aunts and uncles and stuff was to take care of them move back to chicago look after all my younger brothers and sisters well you know, I had this other calling, which could be considered selfish, but it was—it wasn't uh, running away from any particular problems or situations in the states. It was running towards or embracing this this uh, adventure. I mean, I, I remember sitting in Washington Square in San Francisco, writing in a journal saying. I have no idea where this is going to take me, but I'm really looking forward to a great adventure. <laughs> and uh, so I, I think... Uh, was that en route to Nepal for the first time? or Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was, no, actually it was en route to Yosemite. Oh, was, oh so that was yeah, like the you, first step off. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And um, I, I think not everybody can do that. And no. it, it requires uh, some self-confidence. It requires probably... Um, A good enough uh, family of origin, environment, and upbringing to feel confident, you know, and and not be afraid of the unknown, and uh, and a certain genetic makeup that, you know, there's certain um, how to say it, there's certain alleles that are that that promote, you know, help promote adventure and uh, risk taking. That others don't have, and um, uh, so it's a combination of nature and nurture, and, and you know, life experiences. Probably the important, the most important thing was being open to new experiences. Yeah, and that requires not, you know, it requires a certain amount of not tying yourself down in other commitments. Uh, trying to leave enough room for if something interesting and compelling does come up, you can take advantage of it. And then if it does come up, you go for it and without a lot of second guessing. And um, sometimes that can be frightening. Sometimes it's hard to make those decisions. I remember uh, going through what I would call identity crises at various times in my life and feeling how lucky I was to be able to think hard and sort things out and mull it over while sitting in a meadow at 14,000 feet in the in the Himalaya uh, compared to people that had to do it back home and during a nine-to-five job and three kids and that sort of thing, you know. So um, it's all of those factors. But I think the number one thing is a spirit of adventure and uh, acknowledging that and honoring that and then taking advantage of opportunities as they present themselves because they always will present themselves.
0: Yeah. And I think it, I mean, in your case too, it certainly puts you in a, in a kind of feeling or mindset that you're, you're kind of thriving. You're constantly stimulated and, and perhaps, yeah, maybe that's one of the reasons why exactly why you, you put so much of your energy into the, the altitude arena. Once you begin to see it and experience it firsthand and nobody else was doing it, that probably would have been scary to just step in and start collecting data and say, who is this guy now doing this research? But you're like, well, it's another adventure, right? (laughs)
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you had no idea you were going to get into that, right before. No, you got, I had no idea. Right? No, I thought when I was in medical school, <clears throat> I thought I was going to be uh, uh, a family practice doctor serving a poor immigrant community in Chicago. Yeah, you know, I was working at a free clinic. I was working with the Black Panthers in Chicago. I was working with uh, Latino groups, and I always thought I, you know, be going in that direction. And uh, here I ended up. I oh, here's a quick story. How I ended up in Nepal was mostly due to Leo Lebon and Mount Travel offering me a ticket. But when I was a senior medical student, uh, I was very interested in psychiatry, in in the body mind connection, and in personalities and motivation. I worked at a psych hospital during my medical school uh, off periods, and actually helped put myself through medical school as partly as a working in a psych hospital as a Uh kind of technician person, as kind of a junior therapist, you know. And uh, in my psych rotation, I uh, I gained some attention from the chairman of the department, who was Melvin Saption, who was the president of the American Psychoanalytical Association, (laughs) or American Psychological Association. No, American Psychiatric Association. And uh, he thought I should really be a psychiatrist, and I was leaning that, that direction. And I was signing up for a residency at Langley Porter Institute at oh, UCSF. UCSF. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because I thought a psychiatrist could really help a lot of people. Kind of, you know, it kind of fit in with my idea of the priesthood, and then going to medicine, and you help people emotionally and psychiatrically. You could really make a big difference in people's lives. Well. He was telling me that, yeah, I really needed to go into psychiatry, but he said, before you commit yourself to a residency, I want you to, to get some other experiences. He says, I, I know, I've been watching you for a couple of years, I know you want to experience everything there is in life. And he went over huh? to his bookshelf and he pulled out a journal, and it was the Journal of the Nepal Medical Association. And it was edited by a doctor by the name of uh, B.K. Sharma. He said, Dr. Sharma is the only psychiatrist in a country of 11 million people. And he's the editor of this journal. I think you should go to Nepal and look him up and see what's going on with psychiatry in a place like that. (laughs) I said, you know... I'll keep that in mind. That seed was just. <laughs> I'll keep that in mind, and then. Um, uh, Did you just think he was crazy at the time when he mentioned? Well, that? I, I, mean, I, I thought he knew me pretty well. And yeah. he, knew I, he obviously identified my adventurous spirit and wanting, you know, my wanting to experience everything there is. Yeah. To experience and uh, and so when Leo Lebon offered me that ticket, I thought, oh, Doctor Sharma, this is. You know, this, to be. this all fits. You know, so when I went to Nepal, I looked him up, and um, said, "Sure enough, he's the only psychiatrist." At that time, there maybe was another one had come to join him. Yeah, uh, and it was fascinating because he was, you know, the incidence of schizophrenia is the same throughout the world in every country, and so he had schizophrenics and um, all the typical anxiety and depression and that sort of stuff but there was this huge element of shamanism and and spiritualism that the that's you know most of the nepali population believed in spirits and ghosts and all these external forces and and it was you know it was fascinating still do yeah they still do yeah and uh so that was an interesting perspective but and i might have continued on into psychiatry except that i got so interested in climbing that it veered me off towards other pursuits yeah <laughs> <laughs> and you didn't want to psychoanalyze your
0: climbing partners because that's a scary dark place <laughs> yeah yeah oh uh, it's interesting yeah i mean it's uh fascinating i mean it's been great to chat with because i was always curious just like how it all started i mean i think obviously it's 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 Obvious where it went, your career went from there. I mean, once that passion was developed and you kinda of had found your niche yeah. and and it just kinda of tore on from there. Then yeah. obviously going back, more expeditions, climbing, research in Alaska. Yeah. But I think what I had so appreciate the opportunity to sit down here and talk to you is I'm always so curious like why why you stepped in that direction and how and how that adventurous lifestyle was really part of making that happen. Because I, I see people they look at your career or some of my friends look at mine and they really wonder, God, how are you able to do that? Or why did you do that? And it does just involve like, I I don't know, it was scary, but I just stepped out and decided to do something different. Yeah. Um, And it opens up these doors for you.
1: I mean, you Uh, can say something, try it like follow your own heart, but yeah. Or follow your your bliss, you know, the usual platitudes. (laughs) That really doesn't quite fit. I mean, let's face it. A lot of it is luck. Oh yeah. And, and, and it's humbling. To recognize how much of it is luck, mm-hmm. being at the right place at the right time.
0: Well, being being born where you were born and the family you had, sure. and the opportunities you had too, the right? The privilege, sure. Yeah.
1: So you know you have to take that into account and be humbled by it. But, but so, but in order to, I, I've always felt that to some extent people create their own luck, in terms of hmm. when things come along. If you aren't, if you don't recognize them for what they are, that is a unique opportunity, and have the guts to. To act on that then you've, you've missed the opportunity and so in that sense you create your own luck by taking by being open enough to take advantage of opportunities that that come your way and uh, others might say that's an incredibly self-indulgent um, philosophy or personality but um, at some point you end, you end like you know okay it may have been very selfish for me to go to Nepal and not uh, look after my younger brothers and sisters. Um, on the other hand, I was able to put to good use. I've saved hundreds of lives, I think, yeah. and made oh, an absolutely. impact. Uh, made climbing safer. Made altitude safer. Public health impact. But, absolutely. Yeah. You know, and uh, a huge, huge interest of mine is trying to save the wilderness and save the mountain environment. And people do not save things that they don't love, and. If I can make a small contribution in getting more people out in the backcountry by reassuring them they're not going to die, they can go there with their high blood pressure, they can go there pregnant, they can go to take their kids there, show them how to do it safely, give them advice. The more people they get out there into the environment of the wilderness, the more people are going to love it, the more people are going to try to save it.
0: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. What do you, um, I guess just looking forward, I mean, we talked a little bit about your legacy and your dad and now, now your son wants to go to medical school and I just, I, I think about the world ahead too. I mean, there's obviously a lot of challenges coming on the horizon with, with things like threats to the environment and climate change and stuff. I guess, what do you, what do you worry about for the next generations is going to be a big impediment to them trying to do maybe some of the same things that you've done in the past? Well, I'm sure you, know, you worry about it. You am
1: sure you thought yeah. about Tashi's future. And I mean, here, yeah, I've got my son. Uh, he wants to go to medical school. He's a climber, skier, backpacker, kayaker, mountain. Kid grew up in the mountains of yeah. Colorado, you know. He's not going to have the same opportunities. I, I don't see anybody does because now you graduate from medical school, you've got the equivalent of a mortgage hanging over your head. Mm-hmm. And so you can't go take off in Nepal. I was six years in Nepal altogether, uh, all never getting paid. I mean, you Who's going to be able to do that in the, today's environment? So a lot of those opportunities aren't going to be available. On the other hand, um, other opportunities will become available. Like, um, and he may be able to make an impact. <clears throat> Climate change is clearly the huge challenge of his, envi- of his uh, generation, which we, didn't, we weren't concerned with. We didn't even realize it when, uh, when we were his age. So, he may be able to make a worthwhile contribution there. And um, so, I'm not, you know, I guess over, uh, I don't know. I have mixed feelings. Yeah. I mean, between it's a tough pessimism question. and. I didn't ask the question because uh, I thought there was optimism. an easy answer. No, yeah. There's, yeah. No, there's no easy answer. Uh, I mean, doctors will always be valued in our culture, even if the, uh, they're not. As highly paid or quite as respected as they used to be, but he'll you know always be able to find a job. Um, and one of the things I see in the younger doctors coming up is they do put more emphasis on lifestyle. They do work more regular hours. They do want designated time off. So you know, and if you get in a group with like-minded people, uh, you can arrange for you know extended time off so you can go on an expedition for two months for example and um, others in your group might want to do the same or accommodate your desires so i you know and there's still adventurous places uh, or adventurous activities um, even though exploration isn't the opportunities for exploration certainly aren't as great as they used to be I don't know. I I worry about the impact of the environment. Yeah, you know, when I first went to Nepal in nineteen seventy four there were three billion people in the world. And there were eleven million people in Nepal. There's now over seven billion people in the world. The population has doubled in forty five years or so. And there's doubled. It doubled. And there's thirty three million people in Nepal instead of eleven million. And you see it everywhere. You see it everywhere you go it's the number one problem and it, it you know population biologists to them is very clear what's happening and what's going to happen uh and you know on a personal level it makes me kind of want to withdraw and yeah I, I'm so yeah. glad I did what I did when I did it and the, and it was so much fun to travel and there weren't security checks and there weren't mass murders and and uh there's so much more freedom of movement and and so few people in these special remote places, and so I, you know, I, I hate to say that because it makes me sound like a, an old wistful <laughs> <laughs> curmudgeon. But um, but there's certainly an element of the truth to that. So these newer generation has to find new adventures and uh, new ways to follow their own hearts and their own inclinations and passions. I do worry
0: about it. Yeah. Well, that's why we're here talking about it. I'd like to get more people like you've talked about too, just getting outside and getting in the environment, seeing the world, because I think it does make an impact on what how you decide to contribute in your life. Yeah. By taking these adventures. I mean,
1: just look at the Europeans. You know, you, you go over to Europe uh, I mean all the older folks, for example, who don't have full-time jobs are out walking every single day. Mhm. In the mountains and in their their communities. And they have a much more of a respect for the earth. You would never... There is no fracking in Europe, and there never will be. A European, most Europeans would never even consider the idea yeah. of... Sacrosanct. Violating the earth like that. Yeah. You know, it's a different... And I think a, a large part of that is because they are much more exposed to the natural environment because they get out there and they... Look at the sedentary slobs in America, man, who you know, are diseased for lack of physical activity. Mm-hmm. That's the number one contribution to disease, I think, in our society, is the lack of physical activity. And there's mm-hmm. more and more research showing that's true. So the more people, yeah. So perhaps travel and
0: adventure is a way to break out of that cultural mold, certainly from being from the States, depending where you are
1: grown up, I guess. Yeah, it is. And um getting in the mountains provides a um you know provides one with an energy a recharging uh, a communication with nature that is spiritually fulfilling and and also uh, promotes love for the planet which translates into being concerned about the environment and hopefully translates into some action. Yeah. So it's good on many many levels. Yeah. So
0: in that, I mean, just kind of to close here, looking ahead, I mean, from a standpoint of advice, obviously, you're going to be in a position to give Tashi some advice soon as he maybe takes a, a leave after he finishes his undergraduate career. I mean, what do you think for a young person these days in light of what we've talked about and what you'd like to see he uh, experience in his life and, and, and to continue to thrive with those ideals? Like, what do you think is the most important thing for him to do in the next year? Or another young person who wants to try to make a difference and feel like they're being a, <laughs> they're contributing to the world and not just sucking the resources. Do you think it is just travel and adventure and kind of getting that perspective?
1: Well, I think travel um, is helpful in gaining. I think gaining a world perspective is very important, mm-hmm. but it's not completely necessary um, I do think gaining a perspective on nature and the and the value of the natural environment and the planet is very important and you don't have to travel internationally for that but it helps so um, I would encourage uh, my son and young people to get outdoors to be active and also to Join an environmental cause and look at environmental causes and to get active in, in politics. Um, you know, moaning about uh, the current president who's dismantling the EPA and doing horrible damage to our environment is not going to help. There needs to be active involvement in politics, and young people. Yeah, you know, when I was his age, I was protesting the Vietnam War and getting arrested for it, and I was putting it on the line. I burned my draft card on a stage. You know, I I mean, I don't see that kind of activism in the young younger generation uh, towards. And the number one issue in my mind is the environment. Yeah, for this generation. So I, you know, I. I'd encourage him to get involved and to enjoy the outdoors, learn to love the out. He loves, he grew up, he already loves the outdoors. So he loves nature. He loves the planet. He wants to help. Uh, he needs to get more involved, Yeah. get more politically active, environmentally active. Right.
0: Well, thanks for those final words of advice. Be respectful of your time. And thanks for hanging out here and shooting the breeze over some coffee. Good to see you as always. Maybe yeah, we can, Jerry, it's been fun to, yeah.
1: I don't I don't often recount these kind of stories as great.
0: Yeah. Brings back a lot of memories. Now I'm going to want to go back to Nepal with you in the fall after this spring. Did you ever
1: meet Nopka? Yeah,
0: I did. Before he passed away. Yeah. You ever,
1: yeah. You know, it's his daughter that's living yeah. at my house and his grandson that's going to school, living in Tashi's room right now. It's, yeah, that's it's really, such a cool legacy. Kind of a full circle. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, once again, I'd like to thank Peter for his time. To learn more about the clinic and the organization he helped fund, and is still a pivotal player in the safety of the Everest region to this day, go to HimalayanRescue.org. Please consider leaving a donation. You can also go to our site at TheAdventureActivist.org and click on the podcast tab to find out more about Peter and see some photos and vignettes highlighting some of the early days in the high Himalaya. For the Salt Lake City-based listeners out there, I'll be coming your way for a talk at Black Diamond Equipment Headquarters next Wednesday night, December 13th. Come by and say hi. Finally, I'd like to thank you for listening to Episode 4 of the Adventure Activist Podcast. If this episode inspired and added value to your life and passions, please consider making a donation at our site. You can also find us at patreon.com. Even a dollar an episode would be incredible. We hope you've been there with us from the beginning, but if not, check out the other episodes on our site, on iTunes or SoundCloud. If you have just a few spare minutes, give us a good review, share with your friends. Your show of support means so much. Thanks again all, and keep adventuring.